Let's pray together. Father, we come to you together this morning praising your name because you are good. Because, Lord, every good thing that we have comes from you. Because we have no hope in this life or in the life to come apart from your glorious grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be set upon Jesus today. That as we worship him together in spirit and in truth, Lord, that you would work these things in our heart. That as we sing words that in the moment we may not feel, that, Lord, the truth would implant itself deeply within us, that we would know and believe that Christ is Lord. And Lord, we, we trust that you will do these things despite our sin, despite the fact that we cannot worship you the way that you command us to, the way that our lives are not devoted to you as they should be. And yet, Lord, you look at us and see the obedience and righteousness of your Son. And in that, in that righteousness, in that truth, we have hope. So Lord, allow us today and every day to rest in that hope. And Lord, as we come to your word together today, I pray that you would speak to your people that the truth of your word would change and shape and mold us, that we would leave here differently than we came in, that Christ would reign in our hearts. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 is where we will be. We'll begin in verse 11 and go through the end of the book. We have come finally to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Throughout this letter, Paul has been primarily setting forth the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Starting from the promises of God made to Abraham, Paul has shown that the people of God have always been justified by faith and not by works. It is only the obedience, suffering, and resurrection of Christ that saves us. And the churches in Galatia were being troubled by false teachers who were coming in and saying, that Paul had only taught them half the gospel. That yes, salvation comes by faith in Jesus, but after that, you must obey the law. You must be circumcised. You must keep all of the feasts and festivals. You must do what we find in the Old Testament Mosaic law. And Paul says, no. 
Our justification, our righteousness before God is found in Jesus and only in Jesus because we cannot contribute any good works of value. Just because our salvation is not dependent upon our own works, however, we should not fall into the temptation to think that we are free to sin in any way that we please. Because of the work of the Spirit within us, we bear righteous fruit that is opposed to the works of the sinful flesh. And these spiritual fruits are things that should be evident in the lives of Christians and evident in the life of the church. And they are seen in the characteristics that Paul lists out in chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When our lives are examined, these are the things that we should be marked by. And they're not only seen in those things, but they are borne out in how believers approach and restore repentant sinners. How believers bear one another's burdens. How believers exhibit humility. And how believers meet the material needs of those whom the Lord has tasked with shepherding the flock. And how they continue to do good and care for those among the church. That is where we left off last week. In today's passage, we find Paul essentially giving a summation of his letter to the Galatians. And as we examine this text together, the question we must deal with is this. On whom does God's grace rest? That's the question. And so with that question on our mind, let's look to our text together where we first see that Paul bears the marks of Jesus. If you got a bulletin or one of our sermon listening guides when you came in, you'll see we have three points this morning. That's our first one, the marks of Jesus. Let's read our whole passage for today rather than breaking it apart. I'm going to read verses 11 through 18 of Galatians 6. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul's conclusion to his letter begins with his proof that the letter is indeed coming from him. The nature of Paul's apostolic authority, which we've talked about repeatedly throughout this sermon series, it means that his opponents will seek every opportunity to discredit his arguments. And that would include whether or not Paul made the arguments at all. It's not as though Paul can record a video message to be played on a screen for the churches in Galatia. He has a letter. He has a letter. 
And so his opponents could easily say, well, Paul didn't write that. Somebody else wrote that and said Paul wrote it. It's not really from Paul. They can try to discredit his arguments in that way. We see a parallel of this today where we see false teachers attempt to set Paul and Jesus at odds with each other. We see them say things like, well, if Paul and Jesus disagree, I'm going to go with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Paul and Jesus do not disagree. The idea that they are preaching different messages is absurd. But that's the way false teachers operate. We even have false teachers, I have even been told by people, that certain commands or rebukes were inserted by others and not even by the original authors. We have people that say, I don't have to listen to that because it's not in red letters. We have all sorts of shenanigans going on by false teachers, which all comes back to the exact same argument that the devil made in the garden. Has God really said? Has God really said? The answer to that question is yes, God has really said. Everything that you find in this book is the authoritative word of God. Whether it came out of Jesus' mouth, Paul's mouth, Ezekiel's mouth, Moses' mouth, it doesn't matter. It is all God's word. And so here we have Paul writing in his own hand, and it says that he wrote it in large letters. We know that Paul had some sort of physical problem, some sort of physical problem. It is likely that it has something to do with his eyes, because if you remember back in the beginning of the letter to the Galatians, Paul says that they loved him so well that if it were possible, they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to Paul to fix his physical infirmity. And so this issue, this infirmity, or another, some infirmity that he has, makes it difficult for Paul to write his own letters. So he apparently uses a scribe who writes down what Paul says. He dictates a letter to them. And I think it's a physical issue. Scholars believe it is because Paul references here the size of the letters. There was something about the way Paul wrote that was distinctive. That they would have seen those letters and realized, oh yeah, Paul definitely wrote that. If you've ever seen my handwriting, you would be able to know that either I wrote it or a chicken got a hold of a pen and ran across the paper. One or the other. And so Paul writes these things, writes at least this phrase to ward off those claims, as well, to, as well as to personalize the letter for those who receive them. Now, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm not highlighting this simply because it's in the text and it needs to be dealt with, although it should be. But because I want you to recognize that I think it's a fair assumption to believe that Paul's physical issues, his eye issue, is likely related to the sufferings that he faced as an apostle of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, we find Paul saying this. He is, again, in a different place, defending his credentials as an apostle, but also just as a man who loves and follows after Jesus. And this is what we find in verses 23 through 27 of 2 Corinthians 11. It says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. 
I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold old and exposure. Paul's life as an apostle was a hard one. It was a hard one. In verse 17, Paul refers to all of these things and more as bearing on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul says he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. And when he says in verse 17, let no one cause me trouble, he is reminding the Galatians that when someone comes into their church and says, Paul's not a real apostle, Paul's not really teaching you the word, remember what Paul has suffered. Because the slander of the false teachers was that he was not a true apostle, but he was. And this is not boasting for Paul. It's tempting to read all that and say, wow, Paul is really full of himself. But that's not his point. Paul is attempting to shepherd the churches of Galatia in a right understanding of the Christian life. In fact, in the very next verse of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, Paul says this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So there at the end of his list of sufferings, he points out that he has anxiety over the spiritual condition of all of the churches that he has shepherded throughout his ministry as an apostle because he cares for them. And so he is telling them these things and teaching them these things because he wants them to understand what the Christian life is and what it is not. He is seeking to teach the Galatians that how each and every one of us should approach the Christian life is with a willingness to suffer all manner of indignity, discomfort, and pain, even to the point of death. Far too often, our approach to the Christian life is marked by a striving for personal fulfillment and a desire for comfort. Far too often, we present the gospel as a kind of fire insurance, as a kind of life improvement scenario. We have false teachers out there writing books that have sold millions and millions of copies called Your Best Life Now. I'm fairly confident Paul would take issue with the declaration that the Christian life is your best life now. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But so often, we think of the Christian life as the means to which we will have a pleasant life and then a pleasant death and then a pleasant afterlife. We approach Christianity as though it is God as some sort of spiritual ATM machine in the sky who is going to just dispense blessing after blessing and comfort after comfort upon us and we will never have to suffer. But the call of the Christian life is marked by self-denial and a willingness to suffer and die 
Jesus said in Mark 8, 34 and other places in the Gospels, he says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I just want you to realize that when Jesus said this, none of them had any idea that he was going to face the most brutal death of the time. There was no more horrific way to die than to be crucified. And so for Jesus, who they are following as this phenomenal teacher who can heal people, who can reproduce food and feed us all, and we're satisfied with leftovers. He can cast out demons. He can do all of these incredible, amazing things. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's not all free bread and good fish. It's not all healing. You have to be willing to deny yourself and take up your cross. You have to be willing to suffer brutality and indignity in this life. You have to be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. Paul exemplifies this. Paul has suffered He has nearly died many, many times. He ultimately will die for his faith in Jesus Christ. And you might think to yourself, well, yeah, of course Paul would do that. He's an apostle. Brothers and sisters, this is the call upon every one of us. Not just apostles, not just pastors, not just deacons, not just Sunday school teachers. Every single one of you. That's why Jesus says that the right thing to do when you are considering coming to Christ is to count the cost. To realize what you will lose. But Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Paul reminds the Galatians that our lives and our bodies should bear the marks of Jesus. But in contrast, the false teachers are marked instead by the fear of man. That's our second point this morning. The fear of man. John Bunyan defined the fear of man as the fear of losing man's favor, love, goodwill, help, and friendship. Put another way, it's an idol of approval. Placed alongside other idols like comfort or pleasure, we should rightly recognize the fear of man as standing in opposition to the fear of God. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And the fear of man is not something that is uniquely impressed upon some of us. It is a universal, sinful problem for all of us because you either fear God or fear man. And after Paul quotes in Romans 3.10 that none is righteous, we find in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so all of us, in our flesh, have this fear of man. And this idolatry leads us to compromise the truth of Scripture in order to gain approval, seeking peace or praise when we should be submitting to the one true God. We are seeing this happen all over the place right now. We are seeing teachers all over the place, all of a sudden softening their stance on all matter of sexual sin. 
Because what they want is the world's approval. Because they fear man rather than God. And this is exactly what the false te- where the false teacher's insistence on keeping the law originates. It originates in the fear of man. That's what Paul is referring to when he says that they are trying to make a good showing in the flesh. They are more concerned about their appearance before others than they are about proclaiming the true gospel, which is the very definition of an idol of approval. Now, this fear of man manifests itself in two different ways in the false teachers. The first is that the false teachers want to avoid persecution by the Jews. Paul mentions in that list of sufferings that we read that the Jews persecuted him particularly. We know that the Jews follow after him from city to city to city, stirring up crowds against him, trying to have him put to death. And these false teachers are also Jews. And what they want to do is they want to essentially have their cake and eat it too. They want to say, we follow Jesus, but we're also good law-abiding Jews. They want to avoid the charges of blasphemy that can be leveled against them by other Jews because they want to be able to claim that they are still following the law of Moses. Essentially, what they're trying to do is to hide their affiliation with Jesus. We like Jesus. He's great. But we don't like him so much that we're willing to be beaten and stoned and killed. Why can't we do both? That's the first way that the fear of man is working upon them. But Paul has already dismantled this line of thinking. He says that if you submit to the law, you are separated from Christ. You do not get to say, I have faith in Jesus for my salvation, while also saying, and I work for my own justification. Those two things don't work together. The second way that the fear of man shows itself is that the false teachers want to be seen as wise and influential. Paul says in verse 13 that they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The number of people that they convince to follow their teaching increases their esteem with others. If they can convince people to forsake the gospel that Paul is proclaiming and follow after what they're teaching, it makes them look really good and wise and influential. It increases their status and their standing. And the ironic thing that Paul points out is that these men weren't actually even keeping the law themselves. Because they can't. Paul has shown us throughout this letter and elsewhere in the New Testament that it is utterly impossible to keep the law. That's the whole purpose of the law, to show us how unrighteous we really are. God gave us the law so that we would look at it and say, we have no hope. What can we do? And God says, I have made a way through my grace shown in my son. In a certain sense, while Paul bears the marks of Jesus, the false teachers desire to have the Gentile believers instead bear the marks of men. And where the false teachers are motivated by the fear of man and are striving to boast in their numbers, Paul recognizes, and we should too, that his only boasting is in the cross. 
we are tempted sometimes to look at those who are unregenerate, who are not in Christ, and think to ourselves, thank God I'm not a sinner like them. I'm glad that I'm wiser and smarter and better and more righteous than they are. Brothers and sisters, we must always remember that we are saved despite ourselves, not because we are worthy of salvation. You are not saved because the Lord looked at you and thought, you know, you're really wonderful. You're better than everybody else. And so I'm going to give you a reward. If that's the way that you think this works, you have vastly overestimated your own self-worth and you have vastly underestimated the depth of your own sin because we are all completely undeserving of any measure of God's grace and favor whatsoever. That's why when people say, well, it's not fair. It's not fair that some people are condemned and some people aren't. Fair is not a biblical concept. Just is a biblical concept. Fair would mean that every one of us would be condemned with no hope because that is what we deserve. God is not unjust for condemning unrepentant sinners. Unrepentant sinners deserve condemnation. So do repentant sinners. But God, in his grace, saves us according to the righteousness of Jesus because we have no righteousness in ourselves. And when we understand these things, when we recognize that we are saved despite ourselves, this fear of men, the idol of approval, loses its luster for us. I don't care what the world thinks of me. I care in the sense of I want to be above reproach. I want to be well thought of by outsiders. But I don't care if the world thinks whatever about me personally because I don't have a fear of men. I don't seek an idol of approval. Well, there's only one approval that matters to me, and that is the Lord's. And I have that in Christ, not because of me, but because of what Jesus has done. Paul frames this as the world being crucified to him and him to the world. Essentially, Paul is saying, look, the world thinks I ought to be a certain way. The world's dead to me, and I'm dead to the world. We exist in a completely separate reality from each other now. Those things are no longer important. When we are truly dying to self as Christ calls us to, we see things as they truly are. We see them as they truly are. We take to heart the words of the Lord in one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 2.22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Of what account is he? Brothers and sisters, listen. They could come in that door right now and hold a gun to our heads and say, we're going to kill you if you don't renounce Jesus. And do you know what each and every one of us should do? Pull the trigger. I'm going home. Because you know why? In their nostrils is breath. They can kill the body. They can't kill the soul. We, know, we have no need to fear man. We have no need. 
Far too often, we live out our Christian faith under this umbrella of the fear of man. And we shouldn't. That's the mistake the false teachers made. They boast in these things that man cares about. Paul's boasting in his weakness is only in the cross. Because Paul understands that it is only in the cross that we find the Israel of God. That's our third point this morning. The Israel of God. I want to read verse 15 and 16 again before we get into this. It says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. While the false teachers have been emphasizing adherence to the whole law of Moses, circumcision has served as a kind of shorthand for their position. Instead of Paul repeatedly saying all the different laws, Paul just keeps saying, they want to circumcise you, don't submit to circumcision. It's a shorthand. And Paul has used that in illustrative purposes, used it for illustrative purposes throughout the letter to the Galatians. He tells the Galatians that submitting to the law means being cut off from Christ. Yes, that is intentional imagery. He even says that he wishes those who preach this heresy would emasculate themselves. Literally, he's saying, if it's so important and it's so holy to cut off a little bit, cut it all off, then you'll be super holy. Paul has very clearly expressed that circumcision is of no value in the covenant of grace in Christ. Circumcision is of no value. But at the same time, here he wants to remind his readers that uncircumcision also doesn't count for anything. Sometimes we're tempted when the Bible says, this doesn't mean anything. And we're on the other side of it. We're like, yeah, go us. And Paul says, no, 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 you need to understand, just like circumcision doesn't count for anything, neither does uncircumcision. The state of your physical body as it relates to the law of God is completely and totally irrelevant to the question. It's not the Mosaic law doesn't make you righteous with God, and a rejection of the Mosaic law also does not make you righteous with God. In fact, the only thing that counts in whether or not Counts, that counts is whether or not you are a new creation, which is the mark of truly being in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Not he will be, not he wants to be, not he's trying to be, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So Paul says here in verse 15 of Galatians 6, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It is only in Christ that our status of being dead in our sin, slaves to the elementary principles of the world, and being ruled by the fear of man is truly dead and gone. No other manner or method of self-attained righteousness can grant life to us. Only the work of the Spirit. That's it. 
Because only one dead man ever brought himself back to life. And that was Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us is dead in our sins apart from a work of the Lord by the Spirit. And you cannot raise yourself to life. It's impossible. You need the Lord to do it. You need the Lord to make you a new creation, to give you a new living heart in place of a dead stone heart. That is how you know if you are in Christ. Nothing that you do is going to make you a new creation. Nothing you do is going to bring you back to life. Only the Lord can do this. This is the rule that we are to live by, which is what Paul says in verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule. That's the rule we're to live by, the rule of death to life in Christ alone. This book has been about people, false teachers, who say, you have to follow the rules. You have to follow all the rules in the law. And Paul says, none of those rules give life. The rule you live by is that you are a new creation. Something wrought by God and God alone. And all those who walk by this rule are the ones who have peace and mercy upon them. We find similar themes of peace and mercy and new creation back in Isaiah 54, 8 through 10. You can either turn there or you can just listen as I read. But this is a prophecy that the Lord gives to his people through Isaiah. And it says, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Isaiah is utilizing new creation language here, linking God's compassion upon his people with the receding floodwaters of Noah, which we should rightly understand as a recreation. The flood and subsequent repopulation of the earth by those on board Noah's ark, both animals and humankind, is a recreation. It's essentially a reset. It's a starting over. It's a new creation. And so here we have the Lord using this method of prophecy, using this new creation language. And in the midst of this new creation, what is our assurance from the Lord? That his steadfast love will not depart and that his covenant of peace will be everlasting. That word steadfast love could be translated mercy. And in fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, that's exactly the word that's used there. Mercy and peace. Mercy and peace. Peace and mercy upon those who are a new creation, just as Paul says in our text in Galatians. What an incredible God we have. Fulfilling his word thousands of years later in a letter that he has preserved for us to a group of churches on the other side of the planet. We see the fulfillment of his promises that he will make a new creation and his everlasting mercy and peace will never depart from his people. 
This is the great irony of the legalism pushed by the false teachers. They believed that in the law, they would find peace and mercy. But in pursuing these things, they find only death and wrath because the law can only condemn. And in seeking to bring Gentiles into Israel through the law, they have themselves completely missed the point. Because who is the the Israel of God? Well, Paul answers this for us in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. It says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul says in Romans 2.29, if you want to be, understand what makes a Jew a Jew, it is not physical outward circumcision, but it is inward circumcision of the heart. And in case there's any question about this, this is something that can only be done by the Spirit. Because think about the context in which this was written. They did not have the capability to cut out their heart, remove it, cut off a piece of it, and put it back in. Now, we can do that now. They did that to my daughter. But that's not the point. The point is that Paul wants wants his readers to recognize that this new birth, this true circumcision that makes you truly a part of Israel is done by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Physical descent, which is marked by circumcision of the flesh, is not what makes us children of the promise, but circumcision of the heart. You hear that? What makes you children of God's promises? Circumcision of the flesh, not cir- circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. And this is what Paul says elsewhere in Galatians as well, that those who are in Christ are the spiritual children of Abraham. The Israel of God. And those who are born by the Spirit through the promise find their praise not from men, but from God. It's interesting that here in that text in Romans 2.29, Paul talks about the new creation and links it directly to not having fear of man. His praise is not from man, but from God. Right there for us. Those who are born by the Spirit, through the promise, find their praise not from men, but from God, and we obey and follow after God. And so we circle back around to the question that we started with. On whom does God's grace rest? That's what Paul says in the last verse of Galatians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Those who are in Christ, the true Israel of God, have the grace of God resting upon them in their spirit. Now, the grace of God in Christ does not mean that our lives will be pain-free and easy. You will face consequences for your own bad decisions. There's a, a, a pillow that someone crocheted a message on. You see those things from time to time and and there's one that I would like to get at some point if I can ever find it and crochet it on the pillow. It says everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is that you make bad decisions. Sometimes the reason that our lives are filled with pain and suffering is a result of our own poor decisions. 
But as a Christian, as a follower of God, we need to prepare for our lives to be hard for the sake of growing us in Christ-likeness. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we find that suffering breeds holiness. And so we will be marked by Jesus, maybe in physical ways, maybe not, but we will be marked for certain because we are a new creation. And when we are tempted to believe that we must work harder to find God's favor, remember the truth of the gospel that we find in Galatians. The law brings us to Christ by instructing us in our inability. And we rest in Christ because he has accomplished all that we need for salvation. When we come to Christ, we come with empty hands, resting fully, hoping totally in his righteousness alone. He is our only hope of the grace of God. But if you are not a new creation in Christ, marked by the work of the Spirit in you, then your only hope of salvation is to throw yourself upon the mercy of the Lord found in Jesus. To cry out for the peace of God in His death for your sin. For your inability to obey His word. Because all of us are sinners who do not seek God. And so as we conclude Paul's letter to the Galatians, there is a call upon Christians and a call upon non-Christians. Non-Christians, the call upon you is to repent and believe the gospel. That Christ died to redeem you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. Christians, the call upon us is to rest in Christ. Christ has done the work. And our obedience is done purely out of love. Purely out of hope. Not because we know that if, if I don't read my Bible enough, God's not going to hear my prayers. That's foolishness. Because when God looks upon you who are in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Rest in his righteousness alone. Because it is our only hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, that Christ has set us free, that he has perfectly obeyed your law for us. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us who is a new creation would rest in his perfect righteousness that we would not strive to redeem ourselves, to justify ourselves by our works, but that we would rest in him. And Lord, we pray, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know you, that is not in Christ, that Lord, they would be saved. That Lord, you would do a work of the Spirit in them, that you would circumcise their heart, that you would bring them to life, that they would be saved. Pray, Lord, that you would work these things in our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.